On this week's episode, we are joined by musician, lead vocalist and actress Carol Decker. Carol is best known as the lead singer of pop rock band Tapau, who scored international success in the late 80s with a string of top 40s hits. The power in a very elite club as they simultaneously had number one hits in both the UK singles and album charts, with China In Your Hand, which spent five weeks at number one, and the album Bridge of Spies, which sold over 1.2 million copies in the UK alone, going quadruple platinum. In addition to her musical achievements, Carol has also acted on both the stage and screen, and talks about losing her dear friend John Chalice, aka Boise from Only Fields and Horses. Thanks to Carol for joining us on this week's podcast, and we do hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Let Christy Take the Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Glad to be here. Great. Um, can you tell us about growing up in, is it Merseyside? Am I correct? What was your childhood like? Oh, um, I, I yes, I was born in Liverpool and uh, in Highton, uh, but I did leave when I was seven, so I can't claim to be any great gritty scouser. My parents, uh, my dad got a job in Shropshire when I was seven. He was in the supermarket business, so we left... Um, Liverpool and we moved um, into Shropshire which is a beautiful county you know and I think from a parent's point of view was nicer to live in because at the time you know I was born in 1957 there were still parts of Liverpool that were in rubble from the war it's quite tough and I know that I mean my parents are both gone now sadly but I know that my dad had a couple of jobs and put himself through night school to to get on the path to being in business you know um, and we were in, in council flats and it was it was pretty, you know, rough at the time and um, all sorts of goings on. And it, I think it was a relief to my parents to get with two small children to get to Shropshire, you know, and I had a, a pleasant, very pleasant childhood in Shropshire. Of course, I got to my teens and thought it was the most boring place in the world. <laughs> Couldn't wait to get out. Um, but you have to contextualise that, of course, you know, when I was... Uh, a teenager you still had everything was closed on a Sunday uh, I don't know about Ireland but we had Wednesday half day closing so in a small market town in Shropshire there was absolutely fuck all to do half the time uh, in so, Ireland there was nothing on a Sunday nothing yeah, no there's yeah um so and oh and I remember confessing to my mother because I, I was nominally Catholic um I, uh, as soon as we moved to Shropshire and out of the beady eyes of my grandma, who was a ferocious Catholic, my mum started sending us to church, not taking us to church. So I started not going to church, but spending my collection plate money in the sweet shop, which obviously I had to confess at some point being Catholic, you know. And my mum looked at me and I said, mum, I've got to tell you, for about a month now, I haven't been going to church. I've just been dossing in the park and I've spent my collection plate money in the sweet shop and she just looked at me and went okay just don't tell nana <laughs> we had to keep everything from nana you know <laughs> right and carol what were you listening to what kind of music um as a kid i was probably listening to what i was on the radio at the time i can't remember at all but certainly my parents were really 
big music fans and they had a very eclectic um a record collection between them ranging from whatever was in the charts my mum was like the Rolling Stones the Beatles the kind of um Jerry the Pacemakers whatever was a current pop single and my dad was he loved all that too but he was very much he loved all the big um opera arias he never did go to an opera but he loved all the arias and the different um uh operas and he loved big voices so he liked Dinah Washington Shirley Bassey um, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Sashmo, Armstrong. Um, he was a really good pianist, my dad. So he loved um, Earl Garner, lots of great jazz players. So I grew up with music being played all the time and very influenced by my parents' record collection of, of pop and high drama, I suppose. It's sort of between the two, you know. You mentioned the parents' record collection. and yeah. The question was going to be, was anyone else in the family musically inclined how did your dad get into the piano? They both were. So um, my dad was just, he was given piano lessons as a child and he was really quite the virtuoso. So he, I, in fact, I've got some of his certificates framed over his piano, which I have and cannot play very well, I have to admit. Um, he could read music brilliantly. And he, and I think like when he was 14, he was getting really high grades at the um, uh, Liverpool School of Music and stuff, you know. And my mum, she was a pools clerk. So... Um, I don't know if most of the people who listen to your podcast are a similar vintage to us. So in in England, we had the pools. So there were Vernon's pools and Littlewood's pools. And people used to, what did they even do with the pools? Was it like a lottery or something? I can't even remember before where people used to do the pools and hope to win some money. And I think, would it be the football teams? Do you used to sponsor? Yeah, I think it was based on football. I remember yeah, you used yeah, to sponsor yeah. so a competition. Bet, maybe you'd bet or you'd... Yeah, you'd, you'd bet on who you thought was going to win and where yeah. people be in the league. It must have been that. I've actually yeah. forgotten. For um, anybody listening, the, the pools were the precursor to the lotto or the lottery. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I wasn't far off. Yeah. So um, my mum was a Littlewood songster and and Littlewoods had a choir called the Songsters and they went all over the country. My mum did a Royal Command performance and she was hardly yeah. ever in the typing pool being a clerk because the... the, the um, the choir was very successful and um, I've got one of her old autograph books where she used to get the autographs of the stars that they were appearing on the same bill as at the Palladium and things like that. So yeah, a lot of music in my house, a lot and other, other relatives I know also were singers and stuff or on the cruises and things like that. Yeah. Cousins and things. When did you make the decision, Carol, that you wanted to be a singer? Well, I was the grand old age of 22 so um, I, I always knew I could sing, always enjoyed singing. I was in the choir and I could um, harmonise with anything in an instant. And as a little girl, this is before we left Liverpool, I would literally sing and tap dance on my, my other grandma, Grandma Becca, my dad's mum, her, her counter in her, her um, grocery shop vague memories of this it's more of a story I've been told that was quite the sort of little Shirley Temple and I would sing on the bus just suddenly start singing you know and people used to give me money um but anyway cut to you know many years later I I passed my 11 plus when I was 11 and went to grammar school and it was quite an academic grammar school and things like singing and art were more like just hobbies, you know, accomplishments for a young lady to have. But it was a very academic school, so they were focused on 
proper hard hard subjects you know maths physics geography history that kind of thing so I never thought to take my singing seriously as a career path and then the best thing that ever happened to me was failing my a-levels because I didn't pay attention and all of a sudden I was doing these really hard exams and that was rubbish and so I kind of ended up not going to uni or doing any of the things that were I thought was was going to be my path and bumbling around I au paired for a while and I was working in bars and shops and then I I was on the dole and I got put on um I think it was called a YTS scheme which is a youth training scheme and got sent to Shropshire, the Ironbridge Gorge Museum where I was put on the art team in a very lowly you know uh position just the, the great art the, the captain of the team and all the artists had all got their degrees they'd be doing really um amazing friezes and collages and scaled down models of pig smelts smelting things and I'd be just tasked with like painting the bricks or something you know but I liked it and then me and another mate said oh let's see if we can get into art school and I was sort of okay at art I had a bit of a portfolio left over from school and I kind of blagged my way into art school age 21 so mature student so been there about a year and then by the time I was 22, you know, I was hanging out with a different kind of person, more kind of artistic, eclectic, meeting different people to the sort of all-girls school grammar environment I've been used to. And um, somebody said to me, we're all singing, you know, we always had the radio on in the studios at college. And they say, oh, you know, you've a great voice. Um, I've got a mate, he's got a band, and um, I know they're looking for a singer going to a party this weekend. Why don't you come? So I did, and I met this guy, Julian, and um, auditioned for his band. And then the next thing, I'm in his band, and we're rehearsing in a very cold garage in Ludlow. And then we start gigging all around Shropshire. And we we quickly got quite a good reputation. And um, we were doing lots of covers, you know, because nobody was really interested in our stuff. We'd slot, slot in one of our own songs, and people would just, like, piss off to the bar and stuff. But we kept at it. And then... Um, after a few years of that, I met Ron Rogers, who was in another local band, and we did a gig together. There was um, a big... Do you remember the Radio 1 Roadshow? Yeah, we do. Yeah, so it came to Shropshire with Gary Davis, and they looked for local bands to support, be support and open for him. So Ronnie's band, The Cats, and my band, The Lasers, were the two local opening acts. So me and Ronnie met, we liked each other, we fancied each other, and then I sort of poached him from his band, and he joined my band, and that was the start of the pathway to Tapau. That's a fantastic story. Yeah, we've asked this question to a lot of music acts, and I don't think we've heard a, a reply like that. that. That was that interesting. How it just happened by chance almost. Yeah, yeah, it was. Fantastic. It, you know, like I say, I remember failing my A-levels, being like, oh, God, what are you going to do now? It actually meant it freed me up to, to do the thing I was meant to do. And me and Derek are big movie fans. Who was the fan of Star Trek in the band? I come up with the name to Pell. Well, it kind of was me, but I wasn't a Trekkie. 
You know, um, we had the album in the can. It was recorded. We've been out to uh, Wisconsin and just outside Chicago and recorded it with Roy Thomas Baker, Bridge of Spies, and um, didn't have a name for the band. And it literally, the, the album had a release date and we didn't have a name. And uh, we used to argue all the time, you know. And so one day I was at home and I, I had the telly on in the background, wasn't really paying attention. Um, I, and it was Star Trek, the old... Um, TV series with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. And um, I could just hear blah, 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 to power, power, you know, there's this, oh, that's a catchy word. So I paid attention for a minute. I checked out the credits and and to power was, it was T apostrophe P-A-U. I like the way it sounded, I like the way it's spelled. And also she was, um, she was a Vulcan high priestess and she sat on the intergalactic council. So I thought she was a kick-ass bird. And when we toured in America, they, they were, this is, Eons before Comic-Con was trendy. People devoted their lives to a sci-fi film or TV show were nerds and they were following me around and I was trying to shake them off. But interestingly enough, as we speak today, it was 34 years ago yesterday, November the uh, 8th, wow. that we went to number one for five weeks in the UK. And we'd already been top five in America with Heart and Soul. And so now, of course, I'd be delighted if Trekkies or Trekkers were to follow me around because it's cool now. <laughs> I was getting followed by people with putting on plastic pointy ears. I was got interviewed by journalists who put on Vulcan ears and stuff. And I was like, and as much as you can take yourself seriously in a flipping pop band, I was like, this is terrible. I'm an artist. Well, I mean, I've got a freak show. But um, they're very devoted. Yeah, my fans are super devoted and now my own daughter is 23 she goes to comic-con all the time she starts worrying about her next outfit a year before the next comic-con so it, it's 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 big business it's a lovely hobby and they're lovely people they don't hurt anybody do they no no exactly Carol, you mentioned Heart and Soul and released in 87. And although it cracked the top 10 in the US, initially it was a failure in the UK. Cracked the top five in the US. Cracked the top five. It went to number four. Exactly. Um, What were the bands, the band thinking at the time when the the song failed to chart in the UK? We were devastated because uh, the music business is a brutal business. And um, if you don't, make them their money they get rid of you pretty quickly you know so just a little bit of a backstory our md of our label we were on um uh virgin around the world but um on a smaller subsidiary label in the uk called siren and um our md david betteridge just hated all the mixes he was just hated them roy put a lot of compression Roy thomas baker and jerry napier our engineer and and you know just for the listener roy thomas baker produced Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, so he knows what he's doing. Um, and had many, many uh, hit albums and was you know, he's a Grammy winner and everything. But he put a lot of compression on it, which makes the record sound great on the radio, uh, what they call M-O-R, AOR, um, radio in America. 
And of course, those are the days of vinyl. And I remember myself putting the actual album on my um, turntable and playing it through my stereo thinking, that sounds weird. But when you heard it on the radio, it sounded amazing, but it, it did something to the actual vinyl production. And our record company were going mental about this, just you know, hated it. So when we crashed out of the top 100 very quickly at home, we thought, well, that's it. You know, it must sound rubbish and stuff. But anyway, America loved it, shot up the, the, the Billboard chart, went to number four, stayed on the Billboard chart for months. It used to drop down and go back up, drop down and go back up. And then um, a really cool jeans company called Pepe Jeans decided to adopt it for their cinema advert um, campaign. And so we got a reprieve and it got re-released in the UK and it went to number four in the UK. And it also went, it seemed to go to number four everywhere. It was released, it, it just popped, popped into the top five, most territories. And so we got a reprieve and we were kind of on our way. Yeah, and it's, it's really good. I was listening today, still sounds brilliant. And the conversation of the, the, you speaking over the lyrics, whose idea was that like a kind of a rap? You know, like you're talking over it and then you have the, the, the singing coming in. That's a great mix. Well, we had we had the song written with the, um, the melodic, um, you know, more than an ocean, that part of the melody. And then the producer we were working with at the time said it needs something percussive, like it had gaps or he wanted it to move more, you know. And so we tried different um, percussive instruments and he said it needs like words, like backing vocal or something. So I took it away and listened to it and just came up, started going, just filling, just filling in the holes, just filling in the holes. And then I found the lyrics later, you know, so... Um, yeah, so it was Andy, our producer of the demo, who said, you've got to fill those holes with something. And then I came up with that something, yeah. No, that's fantastic. And we asked a lot of acts about their experience on Top of the Pops. Obviously, you're on Top of the Pops. Did you have a positive experience on Top of the Pops? We grew up watching it. We loved it. And the stories we heard about how amateur it was behind the scenes. Have you got a good Top of the Pops story? I never remember being amateurish. Um, what I remember was, firstly, I loved it. And... Um, couldn't get over myself, my first performance, you know, I had a smile like a Cheshire cat. So excited, because quite rightly, I'd grown up. And there wasn't the choice there is now. It was the, the main programme for pop music in our country. And everybody would watch it from, you know, grandma to grandkids, wouldn't they? So it yeah. was sort of all-encompassing. So I was very, very proud, very, very proud to get on top of the pops. Um, I don't remember it being amateurish, but what it was back, th back then was very union so you couldn't do anything. So I'll give you an example. So, you know, we'd sit down and, and they'd, they'd decide where they wanted you to stand and what mic they wanted you to use. They controlled everything. I remember my drummer reaching to, like, pull the snare drum in so it was, you know, a better position for him to reach. And they stopped him touching the kit. And he had to tell the union guy, I, I need that snare drum three inches close to my body, please. And they did it. Okay. And I used to have to sneak my own makeup artist in um, as a personal assistant because, again, they had the makeup rooms and all the girls were union. But they had a certain kind of training that they made you all look the same. I remember letting the one BBC girl do me. And this is um, no disrespect if any any BBC, old BBC girls are watching because, you know, they'd be good and bad everywhere. But she just, like, gave me bright blue eyeshadow and bright pink lips and sort of blusher like that. And I just looked... Look like Marie Osmond, which wasn't really the look I was going for. 
And the 80s, you know, was really the start of people developing their own image. If you think how, you know, you think about how diverse people were, like Adam Ant, Boy George, Leo Sayer, Madonna, you know, we, we were all getting right into our own unique look. And so I, they would bang on your, your dressing room door and we'd have to throw a towel and coat over all the makeup and go, hey, how's it going? Yeah, you know, no, we're fine. Yeah, yeah. And they would marshal you everywhere. You got marshaled everywhere. So I don't remember it being um, amateurish. I remember it being really strict. And they'd want you there at nine o'clock in the morning and you, you'd run, they'd run the whole, they'd do all the individual setups and then they would run the whole show about three times. So you were knackered by the time you came to film it. Absolutely shattered. But all worthwhile. We bring you mm. now a band who made their debut in the charts in 87 with two brilliant singles and a smash a Rooney number one, China in your hand, to Pow! <laughs> It was a smash hit, China in Your Hand, which cemented the Pearl's credentials as bona fide superstars, hitting the top spot in the UK charts and staying there for five weeks where you mm. enjoyed the fame. Loved it. Like I said, 34 years ago yesterday that it hit the charts. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Um, to have a number one hit, it, it, lit, it took my breath away. It took all our breath away. We couldn't believe it. So we were on tour with Brian Adams and we were in Germany somewhere. I can't remember where. And you used to get what's called the midweek chart position. So on a Wednesday, you would get a predicted chart position. And then you'd wait with bated breath, you know, to, and the Sunday was the chart rundown. And then you'd know where you were for the next week. And, uh, and Rick Astley was like number four or something. Or, or, and then there was somebody else. And then, and I remember our tour manager, she came and found us and she had the midweek. And we were just about to go on stage before Brian Adams. And she's and uh, we're like, what's, what's the midweek? What, what's the midweek? Because it had gone in at number forty-three, and it gone straight up to, to number nineteen. So we knew it had legs. And um, she went like, blah blah's at number five. Rick Astley's at number four. So and so's at number three. George Harrison is at number two, and you are number one. And we were screaming our heads off. And Brian Adams came out of his dressing room really cross because he always liked to have a bit of a nap or get in the zone. And he looked really angry with us. And we're going, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one, you know. And, um, and when we came off stage, he got us champagne and congratulated us. And he was lo lovely about it. But we were absolutely hysterical. We were hysterical. And we just loved it. And, you know, it opened so many doors for us. And um, we just didn't stop working. It was phenomenal. Uh, your debut album, Bridge of Spies, uh, was released in 1987. Great success. Were all the songs written by yourself and uh, Ron Rogers. Yes. What's your songwriting process? Well, it can be different. It can be different. So, yeah, Bridge of Spies was a quadruple platinum album and Rage, your second album, was also a platinum album. And they were two albums worth of songs that Ronnie and I had stored up. But not China in your hands. So when we were in the studio recording Bridge of Spies, one track wasn't working and nobody had heard China in your hand. It wasn't written when we got our deal. Um. So one track wasn't working. We were polishing a turd, as the old expression goes. And Roy Thomas Baker said, we've got another track, we're a track down, we're a track down, this isn't working, we can't waste any more time on this track. And I literally had a cassette in my bag. You know, I said, well, we've started this. And we had a piano vocal version of China. And he went, that's an amazing song. And then turned it into the thing that it, that it became, you know. Um, so China in Your Hand, for example, I'll give you two examples. So China in Your Hand was written 
from a story. So I'd watched a documentary about Mary Shelley writing the book Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley was married to Percy Bysshe Shelley and they hung, they hung out with Lord Byron and that whole um, intellectual elite that were always, you know, writing poems, essays, there were university people, everything. And she was 19 years old and she basically writes this pulp fiction blockbuster and it caused a lot of upset and jealousy in her crowd. And that was the topic of the conversation. And um, and then, of course, the book is about man acting as God and creating life in his own image and the sort of Damocles that that is. And um, I don't know if anybody's ever read the book. For me, no movie has ever captured how heartbreaking it is. You know, when Frankenstein, he, he thinks, well, Frankenstein's monster sees Frankenstein as his father. And it's, it's incredibly sad. And I don't think any movie has ever captured that side of the story it's all a bit clunky so the book so that was a story so the opening lyrics to China are it was a theme she had on a scheme he had so the theme she had was Mary Shelley on a scheme he had Dr Frankenstein so story within a story wheels within wheels and then Ronnie had these beautiful chords because Ronnie loves kind of church chords you know um and then heart and soul we got a new keyboard. My dad lent us some money and we bought the latest keyboard, uh, 1986, whatever that was. I can't remember. JXB maybe. And it had what's called a sequencer. So you can play some notes, tap a few buttons, and then those notes just continue to play on a loop. And so Ron came up with, which is the baseline for Heart and Soul. So that whole song was written around a new toy. And China in Your Hand was written around a big story. So it can be any which way. Carol, you, you mentioned the uh, the album Rage, second album, and it went platinum and very successful, yeah. but didn't reach the heights of Bridges Boys. No. Were you disappointed, or I mean, some bands would kill for a platinum album, but after being so high. Yeah, well, a part of me was kind of you can't do that every time. Platinum's okay, but yeah, it was disappointing, and then. Um, uh, the promise was gold. Top ten went gold, so it was going that way, and people were losing their fascination with us. And there's there's no skirting around that. And that's what it's kind of leading up to. After the release of the promise, you decided to call it a day. We did, um, yeah. Um, the record company dropped us. Um, this always reminds me. Did you used to watch the Fast Show? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the scene where they were doing group therapy and people would just unburden their problems and Paul White has to go. Anyone fancy a pint? <laughs> is like so my dad died the record company dropped us the band fell out massively over money and then ron decided he didn't love me anymore so like anyone fancy a pint <laughs> all this crap happened in like um two years it was i'm laughing now but i wasn't laughing then you know and having worked so hard like i told you at the beginning of the interview i started singing when i was 22 I was 26 when I got my first management deal. I was 20, 
28, 29, and I was calling the album. I was 30 by the time China was at number one. So I was absolutely geriatric for the pop business, you know? Um, and having worked that hard to get my break quite late in my musical life, it hurt to lose it. It absolutely did. Yeah, you probably appreciate it a lot more than something that came so easy for other people. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what other people go through. All I know is I... It took me. It, took, it was a long, hard journey to get to where we got, and we we sort of blazed like a shooting star, didn't we? And then came down quite quickly, and it was hard. It, it was very hard. Yeah, personally, professionally. After the breakup in the late 90s, you decided to reform to power. Was it hard to get back into that groove? Yeah, it was. Um, I was just kind of dossing around, really. You know, I'd made a bit of money, which was great, um, but I didn't have any direction. And um, I met in my local pub at the end of my street um, a guy called Will Ashurst, who we just got chatting. He sort of recognised me, and uh, but he, was, he was a nice guy. I was chatting, and um, he'd been in the music, but he'd worked for EMI. He was a music business lawyer. Um, he had his own video production company and we became friends. And he said, come on, let's get you back on the road. So he put a band around me comprising of his brother, um, Jez Ashurst, who's a very successful songwriter now. He probably knocks me out of the park now. He's written for Little Mix and stuff. Um, and I got back on the road in 1997. But Will's best friend was a guy called Richard Coates, who went on to become my husband and we had two children. <laughs> so <laughs> Will got really pissed off because he just got me back going again and I got pregnant. <laughs> so <laughs> he was like, ah! I was like, you know, I was 40, so I had to crack on. Um, yeah, and so um, then I took a break while the children were little. And then in 2001, I got a call to do an 80s arena tour. So all the you know, the NEC, Wembley, all the big places over here in England, uh, UK. Sorry, folks. Um, and it was uh, headlines. So Paul Young, Kim Wilde, Go West to Power China Crisis. And it was um, using a house band, so I didn't have to worry about a band. And, um, and it was amazing. It was amazing. You just got up there, you know, we all did like 25, 30 minutes of, you, you know, your, your most notable songs. And it really fitted in well because the children were little. You know, um, Scarlett was three or four. She was four, Dylan was newborn, and they tended to happen at the weekends. So, you know, um, we could take the kids with us, nice hotels. It was all doable, and Richard could literally hold them whilst I did my 25 minutes and came off the stage again. And I haven't stopped since. So that whole 80s renaissance has brought me work, love, joy, money again, you know, um, and so, no, I don't have chart success anymore. Although the Essential to Power CD um, just did really well in the, um, I'll show you a little picture. I know you're not showing showing the video for this, but this last thing came out last month and went up to number, I think it 
went in the top 10 of the of the physical charts which Fantastic. i never expected that it's got three so it's got 56 so it's the essential to power it's on amazon and all the outlets it's got 56 tracks on including three new ones so if anybody still loves to power that's a great album for you so haven't stopped finally had a top 10 album for the first time <laughs> about a thousand years and this weekend i'm back on the road so <laughs> How hard is it to get new music pushed like and played? Is is it is it a constant battle trying to get the new stuff out and on the you radio? Can't really, I can't. I don't know how to do it. You know, um, the eight. There's lots of eighties formatted channels which play my old stuff all the time. Ooh, can you hear that? No, okay. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> dropping dishes in the kitchen. Um, yeah, um, the eighties channels play all my eight, old stuff, which is brilliant. Thank you. Um, but the new stuff, it's really hard. They just think you're too old. You know, I couldn't, my my home obviously used to be Radio 1. It's not anymore. And I can't even get Radio 2 to play anything. And folks might remember a couple of years ago, even Her Majesty Madonna was saying, I can't get played. And it's because of my age. Yeah. And that's Madonna, you know. It's um, a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a tough business. But um, Ronnie and I still write. And um, we've got a great track. So there's on the, the Essential to Power, there's three new tracks, which are Run, Be Wonderful, and um, Read My Mind. And they're great tracks. And we put some videos up as well if people want to go look for them. We'll play some here. Yeah. 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 And they're very, very well received, but it's hard to get them pushed on the radio. You're quite right. Yeah. Carol, over the years, you've dipped your toe into the acting field. Is that something you would like to do more of? or? Yes, I would, but I'm quite lazy. So in the mid-90s, when everything was a bit fallow music-wise, I was fortunate enough to do a bit of acting, um, just some daytime dramas, and I did, I did Doctors, an episode of Doctors, and... I did a tiny, tiny, tiny bit part in a an online movie in a movie called Nine Dead Gay Guys. I had a part again, tiny part in a BAFTA nominated. Um, it was an interactive drama called Running Time. So um, very early days of the internet, we would ask the producers and directors would ask the public what they wanted to happen to the characters. So you could be written out or you could have a load of lines to learn. They come through by fax. <laughs> it was fun. Um, and then 2003, I was in a West End run called Mum's the Word, which was great. And also I did quite a lot of radio um, work, presenting for different channels. So I was fortunate enough to have different projects come my way to keep me busy, you know, keep me off the streets. Um, and with acting, and oh, and I recently did a little cameo part with Diane Morgan, who's amazing, in a, a pilot she did called called Mandy in 2019, which I really enjoyed. But I tr I had an agent, and then he actually retired, and I was looking for a new agent, and 
they were going, yeah, okay, we want you in drama lessons every week. We want you in musical theatre lessons the other, the alternate weeks. And I just didn't have the energy to start at the bottom. I was, what was I then, 45 with two kids. I'd done my starting at the bottom in the music business. So I suppose I was being a bit lazy. I was just like, I was sort of okay at acting. I'm not bad at it. I was like, nah, that can't be fucking asked to do that. Just part <laughs> or not, you know. We so, have to have to ask you about Benadorm, right? Uh, now, classic UK sitcom, and it had many guest stars over the years: Holly Johnson, Banana Ram, and Madness, and they all got to play a song. Now, your cameo was a kind of a blink and you miss a cameo, but played to great effect the recently deceased John Chalice, Boise. And he's a friend of mine and he was, uh, he said, I've got to do this, I've got to sing China in Your Hand as a sort of proposal to his girlfriend in the show. And he said, it would be great if you came into the bar as I was ruining your song <laughs> and go, Jesus Christ, and just storm out, you know. But he just, you know, he died like oh, six months ago or something. It was so sad. And um, he's lovely. He was a gentleman. So that it was a privilege to do that. It was very, very funny. And his wife just recently sent me some private footage of him rehearsing the song and stuff, which we, we were allowed to put up on Twitter. So that was lovely. Yeah. Fantastic. You released your autobiography, Heart and Soul, in 2016. How was that? You talk about, like, you know, you just mentioned earlier on about uh, sitting in a circle and telling your stories and yeah. getting it all out there. Uh, yeah. I found it nerve-wracking because there were a few things. I don't have a massively traumatised life, so my whole point was to sort of hopefully in a lot of places make people laugh about the the sort of banana skins you can slip on in the, the music business. But you have to give a bit of yourself. And the publisher said to me, you know, if you're doing a, doing this, you have to give some of yourself away. But I didn't have any great dramas um, to to milk. Um, but I did have a couple of issues. Um, my mother had not long died. And my brother and I have had a tricky relationship, um, which is great at the moment. But we've always been quite volatile. And I love him. But... But, you know, we will front each other out. Um, and so, and I had to talk about that. And I also had to talk about me and Ronnie. And when I wrote the book, it was obviously many years after Ronnie and I split up. And Ronnie has a wife and two kids, and I have a husband and two kids. So I felt very nervous. I didn't want to upset them. But Ronnie and I have another life before we, we met them. And stuff happened. And it, 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 it scarred me, what happened to us really hurt me it really really did I'm never ever going to go oh one day you'll look back on this and laugh because I won't you know we had an amazing relationship and when it went wrong it was devastating but I found it hard to find a way of expressing the the pain that it caused without upsetting his wife and my husband do, do you know what I mean it was hard yeah, to yeah. and also um some of the band stories we had big fallings out and rehashing that all those years later after the, several of us had made friends and put it to bed. Yeah. I feel like rehashing it. I felt like I was going back, going back on my word or something, you know, but I was just telling stories that had happened at the end of the day. So, you know, yeah, I found it quite nerve wracking. It's quite hard. And, you know, you, you, you know, you see other people's autobiographies and stuff and they suddenly say oh when I was raped I'm like oh fucking hell you know that must be awful to go over nothing like that ever happened to me 
but I certainly had my um, share of emotional scarring from a few people, for sure. Okay. Uh, Carl, so you can tell us what's next. I know the CD is out and doing very well. Any yeah. concert shows coming up? Well, I was meant to be doing. There's an amazing concert. It's called um, um, A Night at the Proms, and it goes out across Germany, Luxembourg, and Belgium, and it's orchestra, choir, and band. And um, it's 30 years old. In fact, it's run by my old record company boss, Virgin uh, Germany, uh, Dirk Hohmeyer. And uh, I've been waiting for my call to do it. And I got my call to do it 2020. Then it got cancelled, put back to 2021. So I should have been on the road halfway through November, almost up to Christmas, all across those parts of Europe. But unfortunately, um, with COVID uh, and with Germany being um, a federalised government, a bit like America, you know, all the states are quite independent of each other. And Angela Merkel resigning and or retiring and new people coming in. The promoter literally can't jump through all the different COVID hoops that are still being required out in Germany. So now it's gone back to 2022. Um, I can't wait for it. It's a total bucket list gig to do. I urge anyone, go onto YouTube and put in A Night at the Proms and it goes back 30 years. You'll see every artist under the sun, everybody worth, you know, worth, worth their name has been asked to do this show. So I'm so flattered to be asked to do it. But now it's gone back to next year. But next year is so busy because uh, 2021 has opened up, but it's still lumpy and there's still been lots of cancellations and lots of things going wrong. But next year, um, you know, you can keep track It'll be on my Twitter, which is at Carol Decker. We have Facebook, which is um, to power forward slash Carol Decker. I do a bit of Instagram. I've tried TikTok, but I'm rubbish. <laughs> I think it's, we missed that boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I missed that boat. I'll jump off that one. But I'm out there. If you're interested in to power, if you're interested in me, you can find me. You can find anybody. You know. right. Actually, for the 80s revival festivals, anything planned for Ireland next year? Oh, Northern Ireland, let's rock Belfast. Yeah, I was at that a couple of years ago. It's really yeah. good, great yeah, day. Yeah, and I did have one. The, the Forever Young Festival was in Ireland the other year, and I think they want to do another one of those. But again, it's just all getting things to settle down and money to come back into the pot and stuff like that, you know. But I love Ireland, of course I do, and um, you know, I, I've been over to do the Late Late Show, different gig. I did a Late Late Show. Was it two thousand nineteen? I might have been. Over. For Valentine's, I think. Oh, the, that, that is a, that's a hectic show. It would be crazy in the audience. We had Chesney Hawks and he said he had a wild night that night when oh he, did, he did as well, yeah. Yeah, well, what, what, who was I with? I was with, um, I was propping up a bar with, <laughs> oh God, I haven't seen any moments going out of my mind. Anyway, whoever they were, they had um, a 6am flight so they didn't go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to do it. I mean, some big fancy-ass hotel, but, you know, I do have Irish blood, so I do like a beer. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask you that question, it's actually. It's the crack, isn't it, guys? It's the crack. You know, I, the I'm crack. always trying to clean it's, up my act, and I never can. <laughs> <laughs> DNA, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, Carol, right, so we want to thank you for coming on. We had a fantastic interview, really good, and really insightful answers. Thanks so much. Okay. Um, you're at the Last Chance Saloon. It's the last hours at the bar. You have a pound in your pocket. What song? Do you play it on? So hard, because it could be a different song on a different day in a different mood, couldn't it? But tonight, Matthew, no, tonight I'm going to go with, uh, as you said, 
and you emailed me, you've got one pound in your pocket, what are you going to put on the jukebox? And that made me think of jukeboxes, which I don't even know if, if they're around anymore. But when I was a kid working in a pub, we had a jukebox on the wall. And I remember this one year, it was um, All Night Long by Lionel Richie. And it was on heavy rotation. People were playing it all the time. And I would. I'd just come from out the bar and stick my money in. And they're like, All Night Long, All Night. It's just fabulous. So I'm going to go with All Night Long, Lionel Richie. Okay, Carol Becker, thanks a million. And we play it with that. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Come on and sing along